Thank you, Emily and Leilani, for reading the scripture for us together. Saves my voice a little bit, and you don't have to hear me the entire time, but you get to hear some other voices, and those ladies did a great job. We're in our third week of a five-part series from the book of Acts, chapter 69, called Outcasts and enemies, and we're seeing this mysterious plan of God that's, that's kind of being fulfilling uh, and unraveling before our eyes as we read the scriptures here. And, and Jesus made a promise um, in Acts 1.8. He said, you're going to be my witnesses, as he's telling the apostles, uh, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And really, this is a promise that Jesus gave, and it's, it's a fulfillment of the promise that God made all the way back to our father of faith, Abraham the father of the Hebrew people, the father of God's people, Israel, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And so what we're seeing here is, as we get into this series, series called Outcasts and Enemies is that this gospel, this powerful work of God to, to bring in the nations into his family is that it, it even goes to those who were considered outsiders by the early disciples. Last week we saw an amazing work of God in the life of a man named Stephen, if you remember that, we had a big chunk of scripture that we discussed together. Uh, he was introduced to us as one of uh, those who uh, were ins- to ensure that justice and compassion would continue to characterize the church. He was one of the seven that ministered tables and administered the, the resources so that Hellenistic, Greek-speaking widows could, could receive uh, the ministry of Jesus. However, Stephen's ministry went far beyond just serving tables Uh, He boldly proclaimed the good news about Jesus before the hard-hearted and jealous religious leaders, even to the point of being martyred, the first martyr for the witness and testimony about the glory of Jesus. And what's sad to see from the verses we just saw this morning is that this proved to be just the beginning of the persecution of the church. Stephen Stoning, in fact, became a catalyst for intense persecution of the Jewish followers of Jesus in and around Jerusalem. And while Jewish religious uh, religious leaders, they were spearheaded by a young man named Saul, a Pharisee. And if you know about the history of the church, if you know what's coming in the New Testament, you know that God's going to do a miraculous work in the life of Saul. But Saul, in, in this passage we see at this point in history, he's intended to snuff out the church's witness. And he uh, wanted to intimidate them and, uh, and destroy the work of the church, but it ended up having an opposite effect. You see, the disciples, because of this persecution, they were scattered beyond Jerusalem to farther regions surrounding Judea and neighboring Samaria. God was flipping the script on Saul and the re- uh, religious leaders who had crucified Jesus, threatened the apostles, stoned Stephen, and were putting followers of Jesus in prison. See, God's sovereign power over the forces of evil, even when they try their worst, is a theme that shows up throughout the Bible. We're introduced to this back in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, and we see a character, a young man named Joseph, who had been betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery in Egypt, and considered as good as dead. But in that moment, God had a deeper, redemptive plan in store in the midst of evil. And when Joseph's brothers feared retaliation from him after he was elevated to the highest place of authority under Pharaoh in all of Egypt, he didn't take that opportunity to to get revenge. He didn't get back at them. He didn't vindicate himself through, through punishing his brothers. Rather, he said to them, because he saw God's big, grand, redemptive picture over all of history, including over his life, he said this, As for you, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good. Amen? So we come to our passage this morning with this profound truth in our mind. God is the sovereign Lord over all creation. He's in charge over the activities of humanity, even when we are at our very worst. And while Satan, the world, and and wicked people may try their best at attacking God's people, he takes, God takes those evil attacks and injects them with new meaning and with new purpose. And though the disciples in Jerusalem were under attack, God had a better and greater purpose that was to allow his people to be scattered to fulfill this plan, this Acts 1-8 plan to take the good news, the message about Jesus, and their witness to what he's done for them and for us to the very ends of the earth. And so the disciples are scattered all over the region. We too, though, right? We're scattering every single week under different circumstances, of course. We gather like this on Sundays, and as we love Christ and live sent each week, we're called to continue to be the church, but we're a scattered church. The Lord sends us to our cities, our schools, our neighborhoods, and our communities. But I've I've heard this this many times, and I've I've felt this, this way, and maybe you feel this way too, that sharing the good news sometimes can feel more like a, a sales pitch than a gift we're called to share. You ever feel that way? I'd like to, you know, evangelize. Ooh, that's a, that's a harsh word, right? Evangelize, but it's actually a wonderful word, by the way, right? To share good news, to be a good news speaker, but sometimes we think that we, when we do evangelism, we think about the guys in suits with slick back hair, pounding their Bibles and asking for money on TV in the name of Jesus with a telephone number that you call in to donate $1,000 or whatever. And right after that program's over, the TV station schedules another guy that comes on, right? And he's yelling at you to sell you like some ShamWow or, or Flex Seal or something like, like that, right? That's a lot of damage, right? You think, what's the difference between, between evangelism and, and a sales pitch? We know what it's like to be pressured to buy something or something you don't want by a pushy salesman who cares more about the dollars in your wallet than the real cares and needs of your life. So are Christians called then to be spiritual salespeople? Were the early disciples, were they scattering from their corporate headquarters in Jerusalem, carrying just the latest fad or gadget in their knapsacks, equipped with stale marketing techniques and junk that likely will collect dust in garages throughout the Middle East? Is that what we're called to be in Northern Virginia and in Washington, D.C. area in the 21st century? Are we sanctified salespeople, equipped with catchy cliches and tweetable one-liners, But what we see today from Acts 8 is this, that the gospel is not for sale. And this is our big idea this morning. God sends gift givers, not salespeople. God sends gift givers, not salespeople. I love when my anticipated Amazon package arrives, right? And as the holidays get closer, you might be filling up your Amazon wish list. I'll send you mine. You could could buy something for me, right? But I love when that package, and you hear that knock, 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 and you know because you've been tracking it, right? And it shows up at your front doorstep, and you get that notification that your package is delivered. I, I get excited about that, but when I get that same knock on the door, and I open that door, and it's somebody that wants to sell me something or convince me of something that I'm just not interested in today, it just feels insincere and unauthentic. Again, our big idea is this. God sends gift givers, not salespeople. 
And as we consider this idea from our passage, we're going to see that God's people scattered, and we're going to focus on Philip specifically, and we're going to see five movements in this narrative, and we're going to go through it very quickly. And so let's take a look at it one at a time. Five movements here from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. Again, our big idea, God sends gift givers, not salespeople. First of all, God turned persecution into proclamation. God turns persecution into proclamation. As we saw last week, Stephen was the very first martyr and his testimony to his murderers of the glory of God and Jesus as Messiah, it enraged the religious leaders. In defiance to Saul and to the Sanhedrin, devout men, they were crying over and weeping over and lamenting over Stephen. They probably saw the injustice of what had happened to him and they took his body and they buried him in giving him honor. But we see... We see that Saul, a young Pharisee who was zealous for the law of Moses and the customs of the Jews, and he was against the movement of Jesus, this Saul was ravaging the church in Jerusalem. He was attempting to destroy the church. He was attempting to damage this new movement by dragging innocent people from their homes and imprisoning them hoping to spoil the advancement of the good news about Jesus as risen Savior, Lord, and Messiah. He thought, if I could get them in prison, I would shut them up. People would be afraid. They'd go to their homes, and this movement would fade away. Now, in this passage, the first time that the noun persecution has been used in the book of Acts. So we're going to see this activity, uh, and we're going to see persecution increase as the gospel continues to go out farther and farther and farther. But persecution never stops the advancement of the gospel. And we've seen the apostles and believers being warned, and then we saw them getting beaten. We saw Stephen getting martyred, and now just a general persecution and imprisonment. And with all the authority and power of Saul and the religious leaders, uh, they're attempting to destroy the, uh, the church and its work. You'd think that the church would be outmatched. They don't have the same power. They don't have the same authority. Would this movement really be snuffed out? But Jesus made a promise to the, his disciples. We found it recorded in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell were trying to, to close in the advancement of the gospel, but Jesus' promises are bigger than the threats of Jesus' greatest enemies. Saul had no idea yet. He had no idea yet whom he was attacking and resisting, but Jesus is always faithful and he always fulfills his promises. So instead of snuffing out the movement of Jesus, this persecution, it was a catalyst. It was like lighting a flame, right, for greater gospel growth. Verse 4 of, of our, our chapter here this morning, Acts 8, it shows us that the divine intention that God had in permitting this persecution. What happened? Those who were scattered, they, they closed themselves up, they hid in caves, they locked the doors and said, I'm not going out there anymore because I don't want to be like Stephen. Is that what happened? No, they went out to all the regions of Judea and Samaria. And what were they doing? Preaching the word, preaching the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. After Jesus had risen and before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And Luke is, he's linking us back right in this moment, directly back to that promise and saying, see, even persecution is all a part of Jesus' plan for his people. He does not take any delight when his saints, when his beloved children suffer, but he always has a plan in their suffering. The scattered believers, they began realizing this promise as they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Friends, take heart. Take heart today. The opposition you face today in your life may be the very means that God is using in your life to catalyze your witness for the goodness of Jesus. The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. I believe that includes Fairfax Bible Church. That means you. That means me. That means us together. We could take great courage today to know that Jesus is with us and he protects us and he, we will carry on his mission no matter the circumstances. Amen? Let's take a look at the second movement. Verses 5 through 8 of Acts 8. Philip declared and demonstrated the good news. Now, we've got our story. It shifts from Stephen, and now it's, it's focusing for this entire chapter. We're going to see the next part of Philip's story uh, next week, but it's focusing on this Philip. Uh, again, he's one of the two, uh, two of, of the guys of the seven that were chose to administrate justice and, and mercy in, 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 the, in, the, in the church of Jesus for Greek-speaking widows who had been neglected. Later, we're going to see that Philip's lasting legacy goes beyond just merely serving tables. In fact, in, in uh, Acts 21, verse 8, Philip's described as Philip the good news speaker. Philip the evangelist. He's one who delivers good news. And that good news is the message of salvation and the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus the Messiah and that's exactly what we see Philip doing as one of those scattered from Jerusalem. He's evangelizing. He's speaking good news to people who need to hear it. Philip goes to the city of Samaria. Now, we don't know exactly which city this is, uh, but it's a prominent city in the region. Samaria is just to the north of the region of Judea where Jerusalem is. It stood between Jerusalem and Judea in the southern Palestine and Galilee in the north where Jesus did much of his, his ministry. The Samaritans and the Jews, they had hostility toward one another. So much so that the Jews would actually travel around Samaria, whether they were going from south uh, over to, uh, up to Galilee or whether they were going from north to south. They would walk all the way out, way out of their way just to avoid Samaria. The conflict, it went back hundreds of years all the way to the split of the northern and southern kingdoms of ancient Israel. The Samaritans, uh, though tracing their roots to Abraham, the patriarchs, and Moses, they rejected Jerusalem as the holy site of God's presence, and they believed that one of their own mountains, right there in Samaria, uh, Samaria, Mount Gerizim, was the place that God had chosen to manifest His presence with His people. And we see this theological conflict. Should we be worshiping in Jerusalem? Or, or the Samaritans said, well, we should be worshiping in this other mountain. And we see this conflict come to the surface when Jesus traveled to Samaria himself and he meets a woman by a well. Jesus made it clear to, to her and to the Samaritans that though they had it wrong, though they were rejecting Jerusalem and the Jews as God's chosen city and chosen people, Jesus was foretelling of a day when all people, Jew, Gentile, even Samaritan, would worship not in any particular region or any particular mountain, but that the people whom the Father is calling to himself to worship would be worshipers in spirit and in what? 
truth, in spirit and in truth. Philip's arrival, delivering good news, it was, it was the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had to say, now you can come and worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 6 says that the crowds of the Samaritan city, with one heart and mind, they paid attention to the word of Philip as he spoke and as they saw the signs that he did. He was demonstrating that the power of Jesus was working in him since the same deeds that Jesus did to validate his own ministry, casting out evil spirits and, and, and healing people who were lame and paralyzed. These were also happening through Philip's ministry to these Samaritans as well. It was as if Jesus was arriving once again by a woman, by a well who needed to hear about good news, but it was delivered through the vessel, Philip. These signs and these wonders that, that Philip was doing, it was authenticating Philip's message and it established his credentials as one who was truly sent by Jesus the Messiah with his message of salvation to all who believe. And in verse 8, what was, what was the result of that? There was much joy in the city. They were so excited. They, they were hearing good news, not just for Jews, not just for the people of Israel, not just over at Jerusalem, but for them good news for me. I get to be included in this promise too. There was much joy in the city. Praise God that this good news message is for all people. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm a Gentile. I was shut out, but Jesus has brought a way to break down that barrier of division so that we have direct access to God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Church, don't get discouraged as you declare the good news of Jesus and demonstrate his love through your good works to those in your world. Maybe some days it'll feel like you're kind of like Stephen. <laughs> you almost feel like maybe metaphorically and almost literally you're getting stones thrown at you for your faith in Jesus. But there may come a day when, like Philip, you enter into a new conversation, a new opportunity, a new cup of coffee with a friend, and you, you're in that bold moment you speak of Jesus and his goodness, and maybe that brings joy to your audience. Friends, we don't know if one days, some days it'll be in fury, infuriation, or if some days it'll be joy that this message is received. We're called to obey our king as his ambassador wherever we go, and we trust him for the results. The third movement, we see this man named Simon. We're introduced to him, and Simon is amazed by true greatness. True greatness from verses 9 to 13. Verse 9, we're, we're introduced to this guy. He's in this Samaritan city, and we don't have a whole lot of information about his backstory, but we do know that he was one who had practiced magic or sorcery. There are records of the Bible of others who practiced magic and sorcery, and this term, practicing magic, came to be used of anyone possessing supernatural knowledge or ability. It was even used of, of, the, of the magi, of the wise men that we know of the Christmas story, right? Anyone who was practicing magic or anyone also... It could be described as someone who was a deceiver or a seducer. So that's the term that's described of Simon. Simon had performed his magic in this city, and he had gained a great following. He, was, he, he amazed the people of Samaria before Philip arrived, and he deceived them of his own greatness. He said, Here, here's, I, could, I got these little tricks for you. Look, look how great I am. And they were deceived into believing his story. The people had formally paid attention to Simon and acknowledged him as the one who had the great power of God. And his influence through evil sorcery and deception had manipulated, manipulated the Samaritans for a long time. 
Because of his deceptive magic, he held great authority and authoritative influence over them, and, they, and he likely received great wealth from it. This was his cash cow, right? And all of a sudden, Philip comes in. And what does Simon do? See, Philip's arrival flipped the city upside down. The Samaritans stopped paying attention to Simon as they repented, and they turned from their allegiance to Simon and his magic and gave their allegiance to Jesus. They listened to Philip's message that pointed to Jesus and rejected Simon's message that was about himself. They saw the good works of God on display that Philip was doing, bringing healing, and they rejected Simon's wicked sorcery. The people believed the truth that that Philip delivered and they received the gift of God as they were baptized in the name of Jesus. What a revival, right? They're rejecting all this magic, all this manipulation, all this sorcery. They're believing the truth and receiving the good gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And it says that even in verse 13 that Simon himself was amazed. Simon was amazed at what he saw. Luke, the author of Acts, says that Simon believed, and that sounds good, right? That's good to believe the message. And that he was baptized, and again, very good things to do. But we see a few red flags about Simon's spiritual condition, even in verse 13. First of all, it says that he continued to follow Philip. He was attached to Philip. He, he kind of just said, I, I, gotta, I gotta hang out with this guy, Philip. It's almost as if if Simon became a follower of Philip rather than a follower of Jesus. There was something about this guy that fascinated Simon as he saw Philip. He was drawn to Philip's ability to draw the attention of the people, and he was drawn in himself. You can imagine walking around wondering to himself, how does this guy do it, and how can I get some of that, right? Well, secondly, Luke says that Simon was amazed when he saw the signs and and the great miracles that Philip did. And this is the same word, amazed, that Luke had used earlier to describe the response of the Samaritans to Simon's magic when they were formerly under Simon's manipulation. They were amazed at his work, and Simon now is amazed at the works that Philip is doing. See, Simon, he was drawn in by the signs and wonders. He wasn't drawn in by the message of Philip about Jesus the Messiah. Sure, it says that he believed and baptized, but, that, but he paid attention. He fixed his gaze, not on Jesus, but upon the works and the signs and upon Philip. Luke isn't clear about the true nature of Simon's heart in this verse, but I believe he makes his point crystal clear in the following verses. So let's just put a pin on that thought for just a moment, okay? What was Simon's true condition? Let's go to the fourth movement. We see it in verses 14 to 24 of Acts 8. It says, The apostles, who were the twelve, they had stayed in Jerusalem during this great persecution. And, and we'll see some of them leave for ministry beyond Jerusalem later on in the book of Acts. And church history shows us that they, they all lived sent for the mission. They weren't staying in Jerusalem because it was comfortable. They were staying in Jerusalem because there was great persecution. And they wanted to lead their flock well as they experienced this persecution. But during this season, they stayed. Now, the apostles, they had heard that the Samaritans had believed the message about Jesus that Philip had proclaimed, and and so they went. Peter and John went, perhaps recalling their time with Jesus uh, when he spent time with a Samaritan woman by the well, right? Uh, And they were probably wondering to themselves, can Samaritans really be received into the kingdom of God? These people that have such bad theology, these people that have such awful beliefs, these people that are so awful to us and we're awful to them, can we really be brought into this family Together, well, they had to go and see for themselves. 
In verses 15 to 16, it describes a really unique situation. You see, unlike the experiences of the first believers in the opening chapters of Acts and throughout the history, majority of Luke's book, these Samaritan believers had not yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit to come upon them to permanently indwell them and empower them for service. They believed the message of the gospel and they were baptized in his name. But very similar to the believers in Acts chapter 1, prior to the Spirit coming at Pentecost, we talked about that a couple of months ago, they believed, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Friends, we got to be just a little bit careful about assuming that this is a normal experience for believers in Jesus. Now, there are many Jesus-loving Christians whom we acknowledge and as fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God today who look at these verses as an indication that the, the Spirit's falling upon pers- a person is a second, subsequent work of God, separate from a person's conversion to Jesus through faith in His name and baptism. However, what we're going to see from other narratives throughout the book of Acts, and especially as Paul outlines the theology of, of what it means to know Jesus Christ, we're going to see that it's explained more clearly throughout the New Testament that this description of the Samaritan's reception of the Holy Spirit after faith, laying on of the hands of the apostles, that it was a very unique and exceptional experience and not the rule. We here at Fairfax Bible Church, standing on the scriptures alone, we, we believe that a person receives the gift of the Holy Spirit to permanently indwell their heart at the moment of conversion. And I'm so grateful for that. If you have Jesus, you have the Spirit. When a person repents from their sin and receives Jesus as Lord and Savior through faith in his name alone. So, so what's going on here then? What's going on here? Why hadn't they received the Spirit yet? Well, I believe that the Lord is actually doing them a great favor. He was doing the very best thing he could do for the Samaritans and the whole church uh, as a whole by withholding the giving of the Holy Spirit until the apostles arrived. uh, uh, He was doing them a favor. Why? Because when the apostles arrived, he was showing, God was showing, we are together as a family. Your faith is no, uh, no less faith than the faith of the Jews. Your spirit that you're receiving is no less Holy Spirit than the spirit that the Jews had received who had believed upon Jesus Christ. What it was doing was saying, we're not two different groups of people. There's class A, the Jews who received Jesus, then the Samaritans who are class, well, not B, C, but probably E and F and G. No, you're, we're a part of this family together. And so when the apostles arrived, God was showing that they're all a part of this family together. They weren't not, these Samaritans weren't half-breeds or heretics. The animosity, by the laying on of the hands of the apostles, they were showing that the animosity was over. They had received the same gift of salvation, the same Messiah, the same hope, the same spirit, and the same fellowship of all followers of Jesus without distinction. These Samaritans were now fellow citizens of Jesus' kingdom with Peter, with John, and the other apostles, and Philip, and Stephen, and all who had entered in through faith. Praise God, friends, that there's no distinction. That same spirit that came upon the Samaritans in this moment is the same spirit that we receive through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are one in Jesus. No less spirit because of your color of skin, your language, your background, your culture, your economic status. No, we receive the same spirit through the same Jesus in the same kingdom of God. But what about Simon? What about Simon? Unfortunately, we see a really sad but significant exchange between Simon the uh, magician 
and Peter the Apostle. Simon's response to what he saw revealed that though there's no deficiency in the power of the gospel to transform people, there was still a deficiency in his own heart because it was not changed. He had a wicked heart. Again, verse 18 shows Simon's attention. His gaze was not on God, either the goodness of, the, of Jesus or the power of the Spirit. His, he was enamored and obsessed with the signs and wonders. And he's thinking, hey, let me have this kind of power that I can lay my hands on somebody and then they can receive the Spirit. I'll even pay money for it. Oh, my goodness. You see, Simon's understanding of the ministry of Philip, Peter, and John was, was transactional. Because he had been transactional with the Samaritans. He had manipulated them and said, I can, I can do great signs and wonders. You just give me all the authority around here. I could show off my magic. Just give me some money. And so he manipulated the Samaritans. And he thought, I can manipulate them some more if I could too have this power. Listen to Peter's rebuke of Simon. It can't be any harsher. Verse 20, he says, May your silver perish with you because you could thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. One commentator says it like this. If we were put it into modern day language, we would say, to hell with you and your money, Simon. It's pretty harsh. Peter is making his point absolutely clear. Admittance into God's kingdom, uh, salvation through his son Jesus, and the gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit is not for sale. There is no amount of money a person can offer that grants them access to the free gift of of God. Did you hear Peter's words? He says it's a gift. You don't pay for a gift. You receive a gift. And the gift of God is received when one turns from their sins and they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Peter goes on in this rebuke in verse 21. He says, Simon, you've got no part in this matter. It's literally word. You've, Peter says, you've got no part in this good news message. You have totally put yourself against this message. Why? Peter says, Simon, it's because you're not right before God. You've got a wicked heart. There it is right there. Peter sees through all the deception. He sees through all the manipulation. He sees through all the lust. He sees through all the charade. And he diagnoses Simon's problem. And Simon's problem was his own heart. Simon's wrong not because he's just ignorant, but because his heart is still wicked. What a warning to all of us. Friends, all of our experiences, all of our confessions, all the songs we sing, even baptism is not enough to transform a heart. Beware, and I, I say this as a loving friend today, a, a hard, unbelieving heart may rest in some of us here today. Don't be fooled by all the experiences and ceremonies that we do each week in our services and in our small groups they're intended to be demonstration of the work of God that's already been done in our hearts, that's transformed us. You see, we worship from the inside out. God transforms us, and we do good deeds, and we sing praises because he's changed us from the inside. Simon thought his experiences, he thought his activities, he thought that he could be close to Philip and even get baptized. He was thinking that those could allow him to receive this power, and he was willing to spend any amount of money he could spend to get it. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled into your comfort by your past experiences, friends. No, just like Simon, we ought to examine our hearts today and listen to the solution that Peter offers to Simon in the next verse. And what does he say in verse 22? He says, repent and pray. 
Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from relying upon your own good deeds. Turn from all of it. Turn from offering money to receive the Spirit. No, turn from all of that wickedness and call upon the name of the Lord from your heart for yourself. Peter couldn't do it for him. John and Philip couldn't do it for him. Simon's repentance had to come from the heart and it had to be personal. Simon needed to turn and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Only the Lord can save someone who's in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon was enslaved to his own sinful desires. Only the power of God can rescue someone from such enslavement. Praise God for what he's done. My sins are forgiven. My future is heaven. I praise God for what he's done. I hope that's true for you today. Forget the charade. Forget the hardness of heart. Call upon his name for yourself today. Unfortunately, Luke leaves the story unfinished for Simon. Uh, he heard the instructions. Did he really do it? I don't think he did. It says in verse 24 that he calls upon Peter and he says, pray to the Lord for me so that all this stuff could be removed that you talked about me. I, I don't want to receive that kind of punishment, so pray for me. Friend, he didn't pray for himself. He didn't call upon the name in his own heart. What a sad ending. And Luke leaves the story unfinished for Simon. We don't know if he truly repented or not. Finally, the fifth movement, we'll discuss this briefly. Verse 25, it says, The gift was delivered beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, Samaria. Peter and John, as they're going back home to Jerusalem, they're probably thinking to themselves, This is amazing. Samaritans are being brought into the family of God through faith. Let's go out and tell everybody about this good news message. And they did it. Though the gift was delivered to those who were once despised. This good news message is for all. Well, our big idea again this morning is this. God sends gift givers, not salespeople. God wasn't surprised by the persecution that arose in Jerusalem. No, he had, he had a plan that was far deeper and glorious than the intention of Saul who sought to snuff out the church. God sent Philip the evangelist to a city of Samaria. But God didn't send uh, Philip as a salesperson with a clever pitch. No, he sent Philip as one who was carrying a gift, the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gift turned the whole city upside down. How exciting. Unfortunately, Simon, he misunderstood this gift. He was wicked in his heart and his lust for power and money caused him to do something that, that revealed his wicked heart. He asked if he could pay money to receive this gift. But the message from Peter was clear. Entrance into the kingdom of God cannot be bought. It's received only through repentance and faith in Jesus. Because God sends gift givers, not salespeople. He sends gift givers, not salespeople. Now, what, is this, what does this mean for Monday? Let's, I mean, there's a lot going on here. What, so what, Matthew? So what? what? What am I supposed to do with this this week? I want to ask you, we started out in this message this morning, is, is evangelism that we're called to do, is it just a, a clever formula or a sales pitch that we give to people? Are we, are we to go out to go out as like sanctified salespeople with the message of the gospel, knocking on doors and say, I got something to sell you today. We pull out our little you know, formula and we read our little things and ask the questions and you feel like a sanctified salesman, right? Is that what we're called to do? Is that how we're to view ourselves? If so, why would we ever want to approach our family, our friends, our neighbors, and our coworkers with a slick sales pitch? But here's how the Apostle Paul described his work. 
and the work of his fellow laborers in the task of proclaiming the good news. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says this. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. For we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, Paul understood it. Christians are not salespeople. We are not peddlers of God's word. Unlike Simon, we do not practice cunning, nor do we try to manipulate people. We don't proclaim ourselves. Rather, we proclaim Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God and Savior of the world. And when we proclaim Him, we may get to just watch God do a work through us and in us and in our neighborhoods and in our cities, just like He did for Philip and the Samaritans to which He spoke. What glory, what a miracle. God is still shining his light for people to see and he's doing it through you and through me when we deliver his gift of eternal life. We are not salespeople. We're seeing lives transformed. Just last week we saw Ian confess personal faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord and there are others, amen? We praise God for it, yes. All glory to God that he's entrusted us, entrusted us not with a sales pitch, but with a precious gift. God hasn't called us to manipulation. He hasn't called us to be salespeople. He's called us to something better. Now, I don't know all of you that well yet, but I'm getting to know some of you and some of your sports teams and things that you like. And I, I want to let you know I'm a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. All right, good. There's some others. I'm fine. I'm a Tolkien nerd. That's fine. That's cool. I've read the books and I've seen the movies multiple times. And one of my favorite scenes, I love this, it displays the dramatic transformation of a man who was under a spell of a charlatan, a manipulator, and one who had a lust for power and money named Grima Wormtongue. I mean, that just sounds awful, right? Let's show that slide of him. He looks, I mean, he looks really bad, right? Maybe I'll move out of the way so you can see him. There's Grima Wormtongue. I mean, he's just, he's just awful. He's a wicked-looking guy. And he was commissioned by a, uh, an evil wizard named Saruman to secretly pose as a counselor to the king of Rohan named Theoden. And I'm getting a little nerdy here. I'm sorry. However, instead of providing wise counsel, Grima deceived the king and poisoned his mind so that the great king became a shriveled shell of his former self. And he lived enslaved under the spell of Grima Wormtongue. You could see him speaking those evil lies right into his ear, cast under his spell. However, however, next slide, Gandalf the White shows up. I love this. He's a great, excuse me, a great and wise wizard. And it was his mission to lead in, in battle, in the battle of the forces against evil. And he shows up at just the right time to set King Theoden free. 
And though the deceiver and the charlatan Grima Wormtongue had great powers of manipulation over Theoden, when Gandalf the White showed up and his light shone to the king, it rendered Wormtongue and his pow- spell powerless. And he, it's this great dramatic moment and the music gets really loud and boom, it's just, it's just an awesome scene. And then let's see the next slide. See the power and the light over the, the forces of darkness were greater. And Theoden, he's transformed from, from a shell of a man and he turns into the great king that that kingdom needed to fight against evil. Gandalf gave Theoden the gift of restoring his freedom and delivering from the lies and manipulation of Grima's evil deception. He was formerly under a spell, but now he was healed. He was enslaved, but he was set free. What Grima had stolen, Gandalf had restored. We think about this, and if you've seen the movie, that might help you. But uh, we think about this. brings us back to our big idea. See, God sends gift givers, not salespeople. We're not called to go as, as worm tongues, as those that are just bringing deception and lies and sales pitches. No, we're called to reflect the light of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, Satan is deceptive and cunning and would seek to sell his lies that cost us our relationships, our peace, and even our very lives. But the gift of God has shown up and we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're called not to pitch a product. We're called to deliver the gift of God. As we approach the Christmas season, I just want to ask and challenge you for a moment. Is there someone in your life, I hope there is, that you're praying for and loving in the name of Jesus and praying, Lord, I I pray that this Christmas season they would see the goodness and light of Jesus. I want to challenge you, maybe even consider extending a gift to them again this Christmas. You can get them a small gift as a token symbolizing the gift of Jesus. Invite them over for a meal, but do that in the name of Jesus. Show them that Christians are not salespeople, We're gift givers. We are gift givers in the name of Jesus. And the greatest gift that we could ever give is the knowledge of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Will you do that this Christmas season? Be gift givers. Gift givers. You got time? Black Friday's coming up. Order it on Amazon. Just figure it out. Invite them over for a meal. But perhaps you're here today and you've never received the gift. Maybe you believe that Christians are just people who care about their religious causes or they go through rituals and ceremonies or worse, worse, I've heard this many times, that Christians are just fakes and phonies who are just out for money. Listen today, friend, if that describes you and what you think about this faith and what you think about Jesus, I want to tell you the gift of God cannot be bought with money. Before you ever give in that box or give online, we want to give you the knowledge of Jesus Christ and eternal life in him. Today, that offer that Peter gave Simon, it's extended to you today. Repent. Believe in Jesus. Call upon his name and you will be saved. I can't do it for you. Your friends next to you, your spouse, your, 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 your mom, your dad, your family, they can't do it for you, but you today can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved when you repent of your sin and believe in your heart that he died for your sins and was raised from the dead on the third day. This is no sales pitch, friends. It's his gift offered to you today. If you would just receive it. 
he would just receive it. Because Christians, we're, we're not salespeople. We're gift givers. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this gift that we've received in Jesus. There's nothing truly like it in all the universe. Where else could we go? Peter said this to Jesus when, when many crowds of people were leaving Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and the disciples and said, will you go too? And, and, and Peter looked at Jesus and said, where else could we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. There's no one like you. So, Lord, we're here today to say there's no one like you. You have the words of eternal life. Would you transform us into a people that are not afraid to share the gospel? We're not salespeople. We don't have clever pitches or gift givers. Would you show us in the coming weeks and months ahead, especially during the Christmas season that's right on our doorstep, show us how we can be people that reflect the goodness of Jesus, giving gifts, bringing people into our homes, sharing meals with them, living life with them so that we would point them to the greatest gift of all, who is Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's anybody here today that feels like they've been given a sales pitch, I would hope they see today from Scripture, it's clear. You can't buy the gift of God with money, but you can repent and believe the good news and have your sins washed away and be brought into a right relationship with God forever. So Father, if there's anyone in this room that's never received that gift, would you prompt them and move on their heart that today they would search out for someone here that they know knows Jesus in our fellowship and they would call upon your name. We can't do it for them, Lord, but we could take them to the spot where they could call upon your name and be saved. Please do it today. Please do it today. In the name of Jesus Christ, our firm foundation, we pray. Amen.